Section 14 of Jean Christophe, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joshua Seeger in Chicago. Jean Christophe, Volume 1, by Romain Roland. Translated by Gilbert Canaan. Morning 1, Part 4. He stoutly faced his formidable task. His pride would not allow him to resort to the charity of others. He vowed that he would pull through alone. From his earliest days he had suffered too much from seeing his mother accept and even ask for humiliating charitable offerings. He used to argue the matter with her when she returned home triumphant with some present that she had obtained from one of her patronesses. She saw no harm in it and was glad to be able, thanks to the money, to spare Jean-Christophe a little, and to bring another meagre dish forth for supper. But Jean-Christophe would become gloomy, and would not talk all evening, and would even refuse, without giving any reason, to touch food gained in this way. Louisa was vexed, and clumsily urged her son to eat. He was not to be budged, and in the end she would lose her temper and say unkind things to him, and he would retort, then he would fling his napkin on the table and go out. His father would shrug his shoulders and call him a poseur. His brothers would laugh at him and eat his portion. But he had somehow to find a livelihood. His earnings from the orchestra were not enough. He gave lessons. His talents as an instrumentalist, his good reputation, and above all the prince's patronage brought him a numerous clientele among the middle classes. Every morning from nine o'clock on he taught the piano to little girls, many of them older than himself, who frightened him horribly with their coquetry and maddened him with the clumsiness of their playing. They were absolutely stupid as far as music went, but on the other hand they had all, more or less, a keen sense of ridicule, and their mocking looks spared none of Jean Christophe's awkwardnesses. It was torture for him sitting by their side on the edge of his chair, stiff and red in the face, bursting with anger and not daring to stir, controlling himself so as not to say stupid things, and afraid of the sound of his own voice, so that he could hardly speak a word, trying to look severe, and feeling that his pupil was looking at him out of the corner of her eye. He would lose countenance, grow confused in the middle of a remark, fearing to make himself ridiculous, he would become so and break out into violent reproach. But it was very easy for his pupils to avenge themselves, and they did not fail to do so and upset him by a certain way of looking at him and by asking him the simplest questions, which made him blush up to the roots of his hair, or they would ask him to do them some small service, such as fetching something they had forgotten from a piece of furniture and that was for him a most painful ordeal, for he had to cross the room under fire of malicious looks which pitilessly remarked the least awkwardness in his movements and his clumsy legs, his stiff arms, his body cramped by his shyness. From these lessons he had to hasten to rehearsal at the theatre. Often he had no time for lunch, and he used to carry a piece of bread and some cold meat in his pocket to eat during the interval. Sometimes he had to take the place of Tobias Pfeiffer, the music director, 
who was interested in him and sometimes had him to conduct the orchestra rehearsals instead of himself, and he had also to go on with his own musical education. Other piano lessons filled his day until the hour of the performance, and very often in the evening, after the play, he was sent for to play at the palace. There he had to play for an hour or two. The princess laid claim to a knowledge of music. She was very fond of it, but had never been able to perceive the difference between good and bad. She used to make Jean Christophe play through strange programs in which dull rhapsodies stood side by side with masterpieces. But her greatest pleasure was to make him improvise, and she used to provide him with heart-breakingly sentimental themes. Jean Christophe used to leave about midnight, worn out, with his hands burning, his head aching, his stomach empty. He was in a sweat, and outside snow would be falling, or there would be an icy fog. He had to walk across half the town to reach home. He went on foot, his teeth chattering, longing to sleep and to cry, and he had to take care not to splash his only evening dress suit in the puddles. He would go up to his room, which he still shared with his brothers, and never was he so overwhelmed by disgust and despair with his life as at the moment when in his attic, with its stifling smell, he was at last permitted to take off the halter of his misery. He had hardly the heart to undress himself. Happily, no sooner did his head touch the pillow than he would sink into a heavy sleep which deprived him of all consciousness of his troubles. But he had to get up by dawn in summer and before dawn in winter. He wished to do his own work. It was all the free time that he had between five o'clock and eight. Even then he had to waste some of it by work to command, for his title of Hofmusikus and his favor with the Grand Duke exacted from him official compositions for the court festivals. So the very source of his life was poisoned. Even his dreams were not free, but, as usual, this restraint made them only the stronger. When nothing hampers action, the soul has fewer reasons for action, and the closer the walls of Jean Christophe's prison of care and banal tasks were drawn about him, the more his heart, in its revolt, felt its independence. In a life without obstacles, he would doubtless have abandoned himself to chance and to the voluptuous sauntering of adolescence. As he could be free only for an hour or two a day, his strength flowed into that space of time like a river between walls of rock. It is a good discipline for art for a man to confine his efforts between unshakable bounds. In that sense, it may be said that misery is a master, not only of thought, but of style. It teaches sobriety to the mind as to the body. When time is doled out and thoughts measured, a man says no word too much, and grows accustomed to thinking only what is essential. So he lives at double pressure, having less time for living. This had happened in Jean Christophe's case. Under his yoke he took full stock of the value of liberty, and he never frittered away the precious minutes with useless words or actions. His natural tendency to write diffusely, given up to all the caprice of a mind sincere but indiscriminating, 
profound correction in being forced to think and do as much as possible in the least possible time nothing had so much influence on his artistic and moral development not the lessons of his masters nor the example of the masterpieces during the years when the character is formed he came to consider music as an exact language in which every sound has a meaning and at the same time he came to loathe those musicians who talk without saying anything and yet the compositions which he wrote at this time were still far from expressing himself completely because he was still very far from having completely discovered himself he was seeking himself through the mass of acquired feelings which education imposes on a child as second nature he had only intuitions of his true being until he should feel the passions of adolescence which strip the personality of its borrowed garments as a thunderclap purges the sky of the mists that hang over it vague and great forebodings were mingled in him with strange memories of which he could not rid himself he raged against these lies he was wretched to see how inferior what he wrote was to what he thought he had bitter doubts of himself but he could not resign himself to such a stupid defeat he longed passionately to do better to write great things and always he missed fire after a moment of illusion as he wrote he saw that what he had done was worthless he tore it up he burned everything that he did and to crown his humiliation he had to see his official works the most mediocre of all preserved and he could not destroy them the concerto the royal eagle for the prince's birthday and the cantata the marriage of pallas written on the occasion of the marriage of princess adelaide published at great expense in edition de luxe which perpetuated his imbecilities for posterity for he believed in posterity he wept in his humiliation fevered years no respite no release nothing to create a diversion from such maddening toil no games no friends how should he have them in the afternoon when other children played young jean christophe with his brows knit in attention was at his place in the orchestra in the dusty and ill-lighted theatre and in the evening when other children were abed he was still there sitting in his chair bowed with weariness no intimacy with his brothers the younger ernest was twelve he was a little ragamuffin vicious and impudent who spent his days with other rapscallions like himself and from their company had caught not only deplorable manners but shameful habits which good jean christophe who had never so much as suspected their existence was horrified to see one day the other rodolphe the favorite of uncle theodore was to go into business he was steady quiet but sly he thought himself much superior to jean christophe and did not admit his authority in the house although it seemed natural to him to eat the food that he provided he had espoused the cause of theodore and melchior's ill-feeling against jean christophe and used to repeat their absurd gossip neither of the brothers cared for music and rodolphe in imitation of his uncle affected to despise it chafing against jean christophe's authority and lectures for he took himself very seriously as the head of the family the two boys had tried to rebel 
but Jean Christophe, who had lusty fists and the consciousness of right, sent them packing. Still, they did not for that cease to do with him as they liked. They abused his credulity and laid traps for him, into which he invariably fell. They used to extort money from him with barefaced lies and laughed at him behind his back. Jean Christophe was always taken in. He had so much need of being loved that an affectionate word was enough to disarm his rancor. He would have forgiven them everything for a little love. But his confidence was cruelly shaken when he heard them laughing at his stupidity after a scene of hypocritical embracing which had moved him to tears, and they had taken advantage of it to rob him of a gold watch, a present from the prince, which they coveted. He despised them, and yet went on letting himself be taken in from his unconquerable tendency to trust and to love. He knew it. He raged against himself, and he used to thrash his brothers soundly when he discovered once more that they had tricked him. That did not keep him from swallowing almost immediately the fresh hook which it pleased them to bait for him. A more bitter cause of suffering was in store for him. He learned from officious neighbors that his father was speaking ill of him. After having been proud of his son's successes and having boasted of them everywhere, Melchior was weak and shameful enough to be jealous of them. He tried to decry them. It was stupid to weep. Jean Christophe could only shrug his shoulders in contempt. It was no use being angry about it, for his father did not know what he was doing, and was embittered by his own downfall. The boy said nothing. He was afraid, if he said anything, of being too hard. But he was cut to the heart. There were melancholy gatherings at the family evening meal around the lamp, with a spotted cloth, with all the stupid chatter and the sound of the jaws of these people whom he despised and pitied, and yet loved, in spite of everything. Only between himself and his brave mother did Jean Christophe feel a bond of affection. But Louisa, like himself, exhausted herself during the day, and in the evening she was worn out and hardly spoke, and after dinner used to sleep in her chair over her darning. And she was so good that she seemed to make no difference in her love between her husband and her three sons. She loved them all equally. Jean Christophe did not find in her the trusted friend that he so much needed. So he was driven in upon himself. For days together he would not speak, fulfilling his tiresome and wearing task with a sort of silent rage. Such a mode of living was dangerous, especially for a child at a critical age when he is most sensitive and is exposed to every agent of destruction and the risk of being deformed for the rest of his life. Jean Christophe's health suffered seriously. He had been endowed by his parents with a healthy constitution and a sound and healthy body, but his very healthiness only served to feed his suffering when the weight of weariness and too early cares had opened up a gap by which it might enter. Quite early in life there were signs of grave nervous disorders. When he was a small boy he was subject to fainting fits and convulsions and vomiting whenever he encountered opposition. When he was seven or eight, about the time of the concert, his sleep had been troubled. He used to talk, cry, laugh, and weep in his sleep, 
and this habit returned to him whenever he had too much to think of. Then he had cruel headaches, sometimes shooting pains at the base of his skull or the top of his head, sometimes a leaden heaviness. His eyes troubled him. Sometimes it was as though red-hot needles were piercing his eyeballs. He was subject to fits of dizziness when he could not see to read and had to stop for a minute or two. Insufficient and unsound food and irregular meals ruined the health of his stomach. He was racked by internal pains or exhausted by diarrhea. But nothing brought him more suffering than his heart. It beat with a crazy irregularity. Sometimes it would leap in his bosom and seem like to break. Sometimes it would hardly beat at all and seem like to stop. At night his temperature would vary alarmingly. It would change suddenly from fever point to next to nothing. He would burn, then shiver with cold, pass through agony. His throat would go dry. A lump in it would prevent his breathing. Naturally his imagination took fire. He dared not say anything to his family of what he was going through, but he was continually dissecting it with a minuteness which either enlarged his sufferings or created new ones. He decided that he had every known illness one after the other. He believed that he was going blind, and as he sometimes used to turn giddy as he walked, he thought that he was going to fall down dead. Always that dreadful fear of being stopped on his road, of dying before his time, obsessed him, overwhelmed him, and pursued him. Ah, if he had to die, at least let it not be now, not before he had tasted victory. Victory, the fixed idea which never ceases to burn within him without his being fully aware of it, the idea which bears him up through all his disgust and fatigues and the stagnant morass of such a life, a dim and great foreknowledge of what he will be some day, of what he is already. What is he? A sick, nervous child who plays the violin in the orchestra and writes mediocre concertos? No, far more than such a child. That is no more than the wrapping, the seeming of a day. That is not his being. There is no connection between his being and the existing shape of his face and thought. He knows that well. When he looks at himself in the mirror, he does not know himself. That broad red face, those prominent eyebrows, those little sunken eyes, that short thick nose, that sullen mouth, the whole mask ugly and vulgar, is foreign to himself. Neither does he know himself in his writings. He judges. He knows that what he does and what he is are nothing. And yet he is sure of what he will be and do. Sometimes he falls foul of such certainty as a vain lie. He takes pleasure in humiliating himself and bitterly mortifying himself by way of punishment. But his certainty endures. Nothing can alter it. Whatever he does, whatever he thinks, none of his thoughts, actions, or writings contain him or express him. He knows he has this strange presentiment that the more that he is is not contained in the present, but is what he will be, what he will be tomorrow. He will be. He is fired by that faith. He is intoxicated by that light. Ah! If only today does not block the way, if only he does not fall into one of the cunning traps which today is forever laying for him. 
so he steers his bark across the sea of days, turning his eyes neither to right nor left, motionless at the helm, with his gaze fixed on the bourne, the refuge, the end that he has in sight, in the orchestra among the talkative musicians, at table with his own family, at the palace, while he is playing without a thought of what he is playing for the entertainment of royal folk, it is in that future, that future which a speck may bring toppling to earth, no matter, it is in that that he lives. He is at his old piano, in his garret, alone. Night falls. The dying light of day is cast upon his music. He strains his eyes to read the notes until the last ray of light is dead. The tenderness of hearts that are dead, breathed forth from the dumb page, fills him with love. His eyes are filled with tears. It seems to him that a beloved creature is standing behind him. That soft breathing caresses his cheek, that two arms are about his neck. He turns, trembling. He feels, he knows, that he is not alone. A soul that loves and is loved is there, near him. He groans aloud, because he cannot perceive it, and yet that shadow of bitterness falling upon his ecstasy has sweetness too. Even sadness has its light. He thinks of his beloved masters, of the genius that is gone, though its soul lives on in the music which it had lived in its life. His heart is overflowing with love. He dreams of the superhuman happiness which must have been the lot of these glorious men, since the reflection only of their happiness is still so much aflame. He dreams of being like them, of giving out such love as this, with lost rays to lighten his misery with a godlike smile. In his turn to be a god, to give out the warmth of joy, to be a son of life. Alas! If one day he does become the equal of those whom he loves, if he does achieve that brilliant happiness for which he longs, he will see the illusion that was upon him. End of section 14